Ready to dive into God's Word this morning? Hope so. You know, I heard an old preacher say once that it's normal in church to feel a little bit of discomfort. And I believe that he was right because oftentimes when, when we hear the Word of God, there's something that the Holy Spirit wants to correct in our lives and to, to bring more in alignment with, with God's will for us. And sometimes that feels a little bit uncomfortable, right? But it's also important to discern between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of the evil one. You know the difference? Big difference. When the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, he's pointing out something specific. He's putting his finger on something very specific that you can own, that you can confess and repent of. But when the devil's talking to you, he speaks in broad generalities, like, you're a sorry excuse for a Christian, you know, those kinds of things. And so I believe that today, the Holy Spirit is going to be in his convicting ministry in a lot of our hearts and lives. And so towards that end, I want to pray that God will give you discernment as to his conviction, okay? So let me do that. Lord, I know what's coming today in this parable that your son told, and I pray that you would give your people discernment to hear the voice of the Spirit today in their hearts. May we reject the accusations and lies of Satan, but gladly receive in the soft soil of our hearts the word of correction that you're bringing to many of us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when Jesus Christ was here walking this earth, he was known as a rabbi. And the word rabbi means teacher. And in that first century Jewish culture, rabbis were like spiritual mentors. They had been trained, and they were known for their ability to teach people about God and about his law and about his ways. And if, if you were a person who was hungry for spiritual truth, you would seek out one of these rabbis, and you would spend as much time with him as he would allow watching him, sitting at his feet, listening, and gleaning all you could from his teaching. Well, Jesus was a rabbi, and one of the methods that he employed in his teaching was the use of parables, and we've been in this series now. This is our fourth week uh, looking at and exploring the parables of Jesus, and we've noted that a parable is a story with a point to it, right? And many times it was while listening to one of Jesus' parables that the people felt the weightiness of his words, the gravitas of his person, and the words landed on their hearts with an impact. We find in the gospel accounts 39 of the stories of Jesus, 39 of his parables recorded there for us. Incidentally, that's about the same as the number of miracles that are recorded in the word of God. Of those 39 stories, 11 of them relate in some way, to the topic of money, including the one that we're looking at today. So take your Bible or your device and go to Luke chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. You can pull the study guide out and follow along. You probably know that Jesus and then his apostles after him consistently taught about money and that money can either be helpful or hazardous. To them, money was a tool a tool that's not evil in itself, but a tool that has the potential to do great good or great harm to to self or to others. A particular story that we're going to be exploring today is often called the parable of the rich fool, 
and it speaks to both, the, the good and the evil uses of money. So let's get into it. And first, we need to find out what prompted Jesus to tell this story in the first place. So Luke 12 opens with the rabbi, Jesus, there in the midst of a huge throng of people. Verse 1 says, thousands and thousands of people. So just envision that in your mind, all of them crowding in, leaning in, trying to listen to what he was saying. Gathered close in around him, of course, were his disciples. And Jesus was teaching and warning them all about many things. He was warning them about the dangers of hypocrisy and the importance of fearing God and having a holy reverence for God. He was calling them to recognize who he really was and to be willing to publicly identify with him. He was teaching them about the Holy Spirit and how important it is to honor the Spirit and not blaspheme him. And He was teaching them to rely on the Spirit for what to say when persecution would inevitably come. And right in the midst of that, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd, just kind of blurts this out, okay, says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, does that feel kind of out of place? <laughs> Obviously, this guy was not tracking with Jesus very well because this had nothing to do with what Jesus had been talking about, kind of like the guy in small group, you know? who right in the middle of a really deep, intense discussion on Ephesians 1 blurts out, you know what, I cannot figure out why the Cubs traded Lou Brock for Ernie Brillio back in 62. Just out of sync, you know, unaware of what's going on. In fairness to this guy, it is true that in that day, rabbis were often sought out to resolve disputes. And as I said, Jesus was known for dispensing wisdom about wealth and about money, so it would have made sense for someone to seek his counsel, but either this guy was oblivious to the setting and what was going on, or his sense of timing just wasn't very good. So he just comes out with it. And note, it wasn't even a request. It was a demand. Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Evidently, his brother was there in the crowd somewhere. That would have been a little awkward. Really a brazen demand from this guy. Now think about this. Here's a guy leaning hard on Jesus to use his authority to get him more money. Does that sound familiar? Maybe this fellow was entitled to the money. Maybe he wasn't. We're not told. And so in the awkward silence that followed, everyone was waiting to see how would Jesus respond. Verse 14, But he, Jesus, said to him, Man... <laughs> it's a term, it's like fella, dude, mister, put some distance there. Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now that should be at least a little bit confusing to us because didn't Jesus often refer to himself as a judge? Doesn't John 5 say that all judgment has been entrusted to the Son? Doesn't Romans 14 tell us that Jesus, Jesus is going to judge everybody one day? But apparently, he wants no part of judging this matter. The language he uses here implies that he, he felt that this kind of thing was outside of his primary mission for being here. In essence, Jesus was saying, look, to get deep into the weeds of a family inheritance dispute is not what I came to do. But even though he, he did refuse to get involved in the way that the fellow wanted him to get involved, Jesus did have something relevant to say to this situation. Now, how many of you know that being the Son of God has its advantages? 
Jesus knew what was in this man's heart, and he knew there's something putrid in Peru here. He'd sniffed it out. This wasn't just an innocent request by a good-hearted man simply seeking his fair share from his brother. Oh, no. No. There was rampant idolatry in this man's heart, and Jesus knew it, and Jesus aims to address that rather than just help him feed his idol. It's as if Jesus was saying, look, I'm not here on a mission to help people obtain their idols. I'm here on a mission to help people smash their idols. I'm not here to help people try and get the things that they think are going to give them life. I'm here to be your life. I'm here to offer myself to be your supreme treasure in life. And so Jesus seized this opportunity and he turned this interruption into an occasion to warn everyone, both then and now, about the hazards of idolizing money. Verse 15. And he said to them, so now he's looking up from the man to everybody there, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now I can just see that man looking around for some hole to crawl into when Jesus said that, because this is a not-so-subtle rebuke, isn't it? It's meant not just for him. Jesus was warning everyone to be aware of the subtle seduction of greed and its constant pull on the human heart. Covetousness. Be on your guard against covetousness. And you're probably familiar with that word. It refers to the consuming desire to have more than you have. To the unquenchable drive to keep pushing yourself to acquire more and more money and more and more of the things that money come by. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus was saying that greed is not good. It is evil. Paul would later write and call it idolatry. Jesus, who detected greediness gripping this man's heart, now warns all of us against the perils of being consumed with becoming wealthy. Listen to another warning regarding this in the Word of God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. When I read that, I can't help but thinking about a couple that Shirley and I had over for dinner a few years back. And of course, Shirley made this awesome spread, you know, and we just enjoyed it. And then after dinner, uh, the husband and I went downstairs to talk, and the wife stayed up with Shirley in the kitchen. And so I got to talking with this guy, and we're just chatting, we're just having a conversation. And as I like to do, I, at one point I looked at him and I said, hey man, tell me, what, what are you all about anyway? What are you all about? And I'll never forget it. He looked me in the eye and he said, money. I am all about money. Making as much of it as I possibly can. And I was stunned because (laughs) most people are not that self-aware, first off, for what's going on in their heart. And if they are, 
they're usually not that open about, you know, the condition of their soul. But he went on and on about how driven he was to make deals and rake in profits for himself. Later on, I found out that while he was talking with me downstairs about that, his wife was sitting at the kitchen table upstairs with Shirley in tears, talking about how she felt like she didn't have a husband, that she felt like she was competing with some mistress for his love and his affection, how he was disengaging from her and and from the kids. Eventually, they left New Life, and later on, I heard about the disintegration of their marriage and of their family and of his career. It's all very sad. Mark it down. Unchecked greed will destroy your life and your soul. It will. Jesus warned us to be alert, to be on our guard against it. And then as Jesus routinely did, he went deeper. He said, you know what? There's something underneath greed and covetous. There's something that fuels that drive to always try to get more and more. And what is it? It's a lie. Yes, it is. You see, money lies to us. I hear it in my head every time I walk into Best Buy. <laughs> I do. It speaks to me. Steve, if you just had one of, one of those, you would be so much happier. Your friend has one. Look how happy he is. People who are really living are, are the people who can just go out and get whatever they want because they can. That's where you want to be, Steve. That's freedom. That's the American dream. That's true happiness. That's where life is at. And Jesus said that's a lie. He said it's a lie. He called it the deceitfulness of riches. In that situation, I always have to just check myself and recalibrate my heart and, and usually just get out of there as fast as I can. <laughs> you see, money makes us promises, doesn't it? It does. It speaks to us. It says, look, if you have me, you have life. If you have me, you have security, you have freedom, you have happiness, you have people's respect. You have the ability to go out and acquire the finer things in life. You can eat out at the right restaurants, wear the right clothes, drive the right cars, be seen with the right people, and that's what life is really all about. That's what money says to us. And Jesus breaks into that conversation in our heads with a resounding, no! It's a lie. A man's life does not consist in having abundant possessions. Listen, life is not found in having things or having money. Life is found in knowing God. That's what Jesus said. This is life, knowing you, John 17, 3. That's really living. If you believe the lie, not only will you miss out on true life now, you will also forfeit more than you could ever imagine. You will forfeit your very soul. I think all American Christians should memorize 2.15 here and keep it in front of us. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then to illustrate that principle, that truth, Jesus told this short but very convicting story intended to cut deep into our hearts. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I imagine that after Jesus finished telling this story, it got very quiet, kind of like it is right now in this room. Because the surprise ending here where God calls the man a fool and ends, ends his life right then, just kind of rocks us back on our heels, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, whoa. I mean, if there's anything you don't want, it's for God, like God, the creator of the universe, the Holy One, the one who Jesus just said in Luke 12 has the authority to cast people into hell. There's something you do not want in your life. It's for him to look at your life and assess your life and say, you're a fool. You do not want that. Here's the truth. Money can make you a fool. Money can make you a fool. There's no worse fate than to be a fool in the sight of God. Let's unpack this story to see how this man, this farmer, got there, okay? It starts with a blessing, doesn't it? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Is there anything wrong with that? No, that's a good thing. The farmer had a banner year, and Jesus did not chide him for being prosperous. Listen, there's nothing wrong with getting a raise or a bonus at work. There's nothing wrong with working hard to meet or even surpass your sales quota. Nothing wrong with getting a settlement or receiving a, a large inheritance. There's no inherent evil in any of that. I mean, humanity needs productive farmers, right? That blesses all of us. Thank God, this guy gets blessed with a bumper crop. In fact, the harvest is so plentiful that it kind of puts him in a dilemma. Like, what do I do with all of this? There's way more than enough to feed me. What are his options? Well, he's got several. Think about it got a surplus. What do I do with it? Well, he could bless his employees. There's a novel thought, right? He could give his workers a raise. He could start a profit-sharing program, spread the wealth around to those who helped him acquire it. I imagine an operation this size had to have dozens of employees. So he could bless his employees, at least have a blowout Christmas party this year, right? That thought doesn't seem to even enter his mind, though. Well, he could sell the excess and create new jobs, you know, hire more workers for the next season. That would make sense. But he knew that what happens when you flood the market with product? What happens? The prices go down, your profit margin shrinks, and apparently the thought of that was very distasteful to him, so cross that option off the list. He could give the surplus away, people who need it. I mean, unless he lives in the middle of nowhere, there's probably a village nearby with people living in it. There's probably some widows in that village who are barely getting by. Maybe some single moms eking out, you know, a meager existence. Maybe some orphans, some families who are struggling to just survive. 
I mean, he could give it away. But the thought of blessing other people with his abundance, again, doesn't even appear to be on his screen. I don't know if it even made it onto his list. The truth is that his mind goes immediately to option four. What do I do with my surplus? Store it all up. He makes a decision. I will do this. I will store all my grain and my goods. The condition of his heart leads him instinctively to think only about himself and his dream of early retirement. And so to him, the decision is a no-brainer. What do I do with all this? Storage units. That's what I do. I know, I'll put it all in storage. But I don't want to use up precious farmland to build more barns. So what I'll do is tear my current ones down and then on that same pad build three-story units. And I imagine as he thought about that plan, he thought, you know what, I am so stinking smart. I mean, I am just brilliant. I should be teaching at Harvard Business School. But there's a presumption here. It's a little conversation he has in his own head. And I will say to my soul, soul? <laughs> There's no one else around. This guy's so self-absorbed. He's not in relationship. No family to speak of. Soul, you have ample goods laid up. You have ample goods laid up for many years. That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? As he, as he steps back and, and envisions all of those massive silos filled with grain, and he being the only one who can turn that spigot at the bottom on or off, he can control the flow of his goods into the market, it makes him feel pretty smug about his future, doesn't it? He's thinking, man, I am set for life. I am living the dream. He can retire early. He can take it easy. He can sit around and watch Andy Griffith reruns all day if that's what he wants to do. He can go out and play golf every day at the country club. He can order in for breakfast and lunch and dinner and a late night snack. He can drink only the finest wines. He's thinking, man, I'm really going to be living it up now. But then there's a surprise, and it is devastating. But God, enter God. God, I wasn't thinking about God. Exactly. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Whoa, a heart attack? A tree falling on his house? We don't know, it doesn't matter. In an instant, this self-absorbed man, with all of his plans for living it up in his retirement years, it's done. It's over. And he enters eternity just like that. You know what? He could not take one red cent with him into the next life. Not one. And then there's almost like a taunt from God. And the things you have prepared, implied for yourself, then whose will they be? Hey, fella. What's going to happen to all your stuff you hoarded away for yourself? 
instead of him getting to indulge himself for many years and living it up, what's going to happen? Other people are going to get to end up with his wealth. I'm sure just thinking about that made him nauseous. Jesus here might have been thinking about a passage from King Solomon's journal. We call it Ecclesiastes in our Bible, where he wrote this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, emptiness. So Jesus finished the story with a jolt, and then he drove home his main point. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let that sink in. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus is now applying this to anyone who thinks like that guy thinks, who lives like that guy lives. I think for, for we who live in a, a prosperous country in the 21st century, the retelling of this story stirs up all kinds of questions in us, doesn't it? It does in me. Like, now wait a second, am I supposed to feel bad if I have a good year? If I have a prosperous year, am I supposed to feel guilty about that? Am I sinning by renting a storage unit for all of my surplus stuff? Doesn't God want me to save up for the future? Is it wrong to want to feel secure? Aren't we supposed to be working hard to have a, a great retirement? What's wrong with looking forward to a time when we can relax and take it easy after 40 years of labor? Sure, we hear Jesus' story here. It's not hard for us to see how selfish and self-absorbed that guy was, and we say, well, that's, that's just wrong. That's just evil. But doesn't this story also make you a little bit uncomfortable? It makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't consider myself a greedy person, but is it possible that I might just be and just don't see it? In his great book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes this, greed and avarice are especially hard to see in ourselves. Nobody thinks they are greedy. He said, after many years of ministry, people have come into my office and confessed many different kinds of sins, but I cannot recall one time anyone ever coming and saying, Pastor, I spend too much money on me. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. And he says, greed hides itself from its victim. So I'm going to leave all of those disturbing questions unanswered and just leave the tension hanging there in the air because I believe that each of us individually needs to wrestle with Jesus Stinging indictment here of this covetous man. And I think each of us needs to ask the Holy Spirit, search my heart, Lord, show me if there's some of this in me. But let's do ask this. What was it that made the rich fool foolish? What did he miss? Where did he go wrong? And, and several things I think are immediately obvious. First, he failed to acknowledge God. He left God out, didn't he? Do you see any mention of God in this man's thoughts or in that little conversation he had with himself? Any mention of God at all? 
None. I mean, listen to me. If there's any profession where God ought to be acknowledged, is it not farming? Isn't God in control of everything? The elements, the weather, the sun, the rain, the soil, the seed that grows. Yet not a word of gratitude to God. Listen to me. Forgetting God is a disastrous mistake to make in your life. Failing to acknowledge God's role in your prosperity is the height of foolishness. Not to mention arrogance. You know it could all change like that in an instant. He forgot God, but there's something deeper here too. Number two, he, he treasured other things more than he treasured God. True? Yeah. A quote I heard from Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, it's convicting. He said this, the one way you know that Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else really is. My favorite definition of a disciple is someone who treasures Jesus and his gospel above everything else. By his thoughts and his choices, this man revealed that he had made money his treasure instead of God. And that is foolish. That's a grave error. That's a fatal mistake to make, to treasure money over God. Third, foolish mistake he made. He thought, this man thought that he was sovereign over his life. That's a huge error, isn't it? I mean, he's thinking, look, I got my life planned out. I know what I'm going to do. I got many years left, and I know how I'm going to spend them. We call that self-sovereignty. Like, I'm the master of my fate. And it is a mirage. It's an illusion, isn't it? Listen to James 4.13. James wrote this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Poof. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Like many people, this guy thought he was calling the shots. He thought he was autonomous. He thought he answered to no one. Not so. God announced his funeral. This night, your soul is required of you. And interesting, in the original language, it's plural. You could translate it like this. This night, they're coming for you. Angels? Demons? Hey, buddy, your life is not your life. It's mine, and I'm taking it back tonight. And you were foolish to arrogantly think that you are the captain of your soul. Only God is sovereign. Many foolish mistakes. Number four, he was blind to the needs of others. I mean, this is the one that kind of jumps out to us, right? <laughs> Greed blinds people. This guy was busy planning for his own, own needs to be met. But thinking about other people, blessing them, his employees, others in the town, it didn't even make it onto his screen. He was the ultimate self-consumed 
person. And you know what? To die that way is tragic. I've been to a few funerals for people who live that way. It is tragic. Number five, he forgot to consider eternity. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, he was living for the little red tip of the rope. Remember that? He was living as if this life is all there is. No thought of the next life. No thought of using his money to help other people hear the gospel and be saved forever, like Jesus would say a few chapters later. No thought of that. No thought of laying up treasure in heaven, only down here on the earth. It's a grave error, and it would cost him his soul forever. And number six, kind of a summary of all of them, he failed to be rich towards God. This is God's indictment of him. You laid up treasure for yourself, but you were not rich towards me. Rich towards God. Jesus ended this section with that phrase. It's only found here in the Bible, only here. But it's very important. Living our lives and using our money in such a way as to be rich towards God is obviously Jesus' whole point here in telling the story. Being rich towards God is what will keep us from allowing money to make us fools. So what is it? What does it mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Now, on your outline there, do you see there are five points? You see there's nothing in there? So that means I can say whatever I want to say. They're not even going to come on the screen. So I'm only going to give you three for the sake of time. How can we be rich towards God? I think it's very obvious. First, don't be that guy. <laughs> being rich towards God is being the opposite of everything that guy was, right? Don't be that guy. Don't make the mistakes, the foolish mistakes he did. Don't think in your head that really living means having a lot of stuff. Second, save and give. How can I be rich towards God? Well, save, you know, save some up for your future. There's nothing wrong with that. The book of Proverbs extols the virtues of seeing what's coming and being prepared. So save, but also give away as much as you possibly can in this life to the things that will outlive you. You can outlive yourself by outgiving yourself. Now, i got to say this. In studying this parable, I felt a very strong impression, I believe from the Lord, to challenge you as God's people to consider something. I try to let the text lead where we go, and, and this text does. I want you to think about that final question that God poses to this rich fool as he was about to die. Kind of that taunt, remember? Hey, the things that you have prepared, whose are they going to be? Would you stop and think about that for a minute? As each of us draws closer to our own appointment with death, I think this question begs for our attention, especially those of us who are in our 50s, and 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Where will your remaining assets go when you die? Who's going to be the recipients of your estate? Who will be the beneficiaries of everything you have worked for? Prompted by the ending of this story, I'm asking you to consider that for a moment. 
are you making preparations for the people that you love to receive upon your death the rewards of your labor? And are you making preparations for the work that you love, the gospel work that you love, to benefit from the fruits of your labor after you're gone? I have some elders in our church who've been talking to me for years, really, about talking to you about legacy giving. And, and, and it, you know, I like to go where the text goes. This is where it goes. You know, there's a guy up the street who, a few years ago, he doesn't even go here, not even a member here, but he came to us and said, you know what, I like the work you guys are doing in this community so much that I am donating my house to you upon my death. I want you to have my house. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You don't even go here. What about the people who do go here, who are ministry partners in this church, who are deeply vested in the mission here, who believe in what we're doing and preaching the gospel and keeping Jesus front and center all the time in in our lives? Should we not also, I mean, if that guy can, should not we also think about maybe including New Life Church in our wills, as a beneficiary in our life insurance, setting up a charitable annuity trust, some of those kinds of things that people do these days as a legacy so that when you're gone, you're still giving and your money is still having an eternal impact so that the gospel goes forth. I had it, I sensed the Lord telling me that there were 10 people this weekend in these services who were here this message who he's already been talking to about this. And this was meant to confirm that. Outlive yourself by outgiving yourself. And then third, make God your treasure, not money. Amen? This guy failed miserably at this. Don't make money your treasure. Money's just money. It's got the power to do good. It can do great good. It's got the power to corrupt your soul. Make God your treasure, not money. Ask God to show you, listen, how to use money in such a way as to make God look better than money. That's why you're here, to make God look great like he is. Let's think for a minute. What might have been different if this farmer, this suddenly prosperous farmer, had made God his treasure instead of money how might that little conversation in his head have been different instead of saying soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry i think he might have said if god was his treasure he might have said something like this god it's all yours (laughs) it's all yours you blessed me with an abundant harvest this year. It's yours. I didn't do much at all. Planted some seed. You made it grow. It's yours, God. You made my fields prosper. Show me, God, how to express with my riches that you are my treasure and riches are not. I already have enough. I don't need a bigger and bigger and bigger safety net. I don't need better food, better drink, better parties. I do want to make merry, but not with self-indulgent retirees. I want to make merry with the people who are benefiting from my generosity. Those are the parties I want to be in. 
I want the fullest blessing of giving because, Lord, you taught me it is better, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you have felt a little bit of the conviction, at least a little bit of the conviction of the Holy Spirit today? Anybody? Me too. Jesus, thank you so much for this story. Thank you for its power. Thank you for not being one who was addicted to approval and didn't want to step on anybody's toes, but you just brought it. I mean, you just brought the truth to the people. And I pray that through your spirit, you're bringing the truth to the people here today. So how many of you would lift your hand and say, the Lord clearly, clearly spoke something to my heart today? Do I see your hands? The Lord clearly spoke something to my heart today. Okay, many, many of you. Praise God for that. Maybe it's to make God your treasure instead of money, I hope. Maybe God is talking to you about salvation, about coming to Jesus for forgiveness because of his death on the cross for you. I left number four and five blank on your outline there so that you could write into there those spaces, the things that the Lord clearly spoke to you today. Would you do that? Just write it in there. You, you need to see it in words. I asked this the first hour. How many of you think I'm one of those 10 you talked about? I believe I'm one of those 10 that God's talking about legacy giving. I see that hand. Two, three, four. Anybody else? Five. Lord, you see this. You see our hearts. You see into our hearts. I pray, Jesus, that you would cause us to be a people who treasure you above money and that by how we use our money, people see that. And the people we work with and family members and others think about us and they think, man, that, that guy, that gal, they live by a different value system. They're kind of upside down from the culture and then help them to realize, no, actually, we're right side up. <laughs> and the culture is upside down. May we treasure you more than money. I pray in Christ's name, amen.